All right, today I'm in Dublin with Dave O'Reilly. Thanks very much for agreeing to, to take some time out to talk to us, Dave. Thank you for asking me to talk to you. That's all right. right, so if I've got this right, correct me if there's anything more. You're a ground commentator. You spent 34 years in the industry with Labricks and Paddy Power. You work on course with AK Bets, and you're an ethical celebrant. Correct. Where should we start? Uh, we'll probably start with the... Uh, Probably uh, the betting career. My betting career, I started with Mecca Bookmakers back in 1987. I left Ireland in 1986 due to economic. I was an economic refugee because there was just no work in Ireland at the time. Um, I had previously worked as a chef and I ended up working in a kebab shop. There was so little work over here. So in the 80s, I went over to the UK, 86, worked in a few bars over there. And then uh, the last job I had as a chef, I was a pastry chef. And I must say, I was never any good at pastry. But I said I was. And when I went in, I was working at this beautiful French restaurant beside uh, Whitehart Lane called La Patisserie or whatever. It was. So I was the pastry chef. And then I realised after about a month, there's only so much you can do with a sponge cake. So I said, <laughs> I better get the hell out of here. And I noticed that Mecca bookmakers who were quite prevalent in London at the time, where I was living and they were looking for staff. And I said, mm, I like an old bet. I've been betting since I was about seven. I think I'll give this a whirl. It'll do me till Christmas anyway. So I applied for a job in Mecca Bookmakers, went for the interview, did a little match test. Within two weeks, I'd started in Mecca Bookmakers. Started off as a cashier. I was working in the shop in uh, Blackstock Road in uh, North London near uh, Finsbury Park in the Mecca shop there, it was a, quite a big shop and the manager there was very good. He was a Greek fella called Andreas Victoris, who was still a very good friend of mine. He's godfather to my daughter. Uh, we meet up with him t two or three times a year when we go racing, either Ascot or Paris is where we go. Definitely meet every year and Cheltenham. So started with him in around October 87 as a cashier. And by Christmas, he said to me, you know, I think Dave, you have the, the flair here. You should go on the trainee manager program. So I applied for the trainee manager program, went in, sat another maths test. Uh, so passed that. So then they sent me on. Like the big thing in the then days was settling. And Mecca, I can quite honestly say, had the best training in the whole world when it came to betting shop staff because the settling program was a six weeks program and it was ran down in Brick Lane in a brewery, which really suited me because you could always have a point every lunchtime. So you did your four week settling course you would then go out and become like a second settler for the busier shops. Now, what they call busy compared to Irish shops is not busy at all. You know what I mean? They did very few shops. It was only where it is when I came back to Ireland to work here, the volume. But anyway, that's aside. So did my second settling in shops, went and did my manager's course. That was a four-week course. And it ran through everything like from, you know, costs, energies, P&Ls, all that. So it was fantastic training. And then in around June of 88, I got my first shop, which was on Gillespie Road, right beside Highbury. And me being a sports fan was a bit of a die. I was going, oh, I wish I was up at White Hart Lane, but I was there at Gillespie Road. And I always used to love them because when the Saturdays, when the Arsenal were at home, uh, there was none of the variety of bets there is now. We, I'd have to ring the traders to get uh, prices for the first Arsenal goal scorer. That was it. That was the, uh, there was no betting like double result, nothing to what there is now. First goal scorer, that's all we betted on. And uh, it was great. Merce used to always come over and back himself. And more times than not, he won. 
Um, so that was my, that's how my betting career started with Mecca in the 80s. Uh, I spent till 1992 with them. I rose up through the ranks because I, I, I don't know, put it down to my hard work and probably my personality because I went to take on, I went to shops where no one else would go. And any time they were saying, will you go and manage your shop? I'd say, well, do I get an upgrade? And they'd say, yeah, so say, I'll go. Because it was just, if you're going to work, you want to earn money. So I worked in some pretty crazy betting shops over there, I must say. Yeah, you must, I mean, that must have been quite unusual. How old were you at the time? Sorry? How old were you when you got your first uh, shop? I, I was uh, 21 when I got my first yeah, shop. So that's quite young, and you were working in some quite hairy areas. Yeah, and I mean, it's funny, I only think of it now. When I was 21, I looked at managers who were, say, in their late 40s. And I'd be looking at them going, oh, shit, they haven't got a clue, you know what I mean? Nailfless. And then I got to that age myself in my career, and I go, the young people coming through now must be saying, look at that elfless, he hasn't got a clue. But the experience and the people I worked with were magnificent. That's what I really loved about the business. It was the crack, the camaraderie, uh, you know, you'd meet up after work. There was no nights then at the time, there was no Sundays. So it was a much easier job, it was a much more relaxed pace. Sure, I remember like, I know, when I was a manager, it was about the second shop I had. It was the summertime, so you'd go in in the morning at half nine, put the papers up, your cashier would come in, so you'd go off, play a few holes of golf, a couple of points, back for half one, send her off, because the first race wasn't until two o'clock. And like in them days, there was three horses, two dogs. If there was four horses, there was one dog, and if there was five horses, there was no dogs. And we used to complain, oh, it's busy. You know, what we, if you look at the volume of stuff now, so there probably would have been about 60 events to settle a day, so there's probably about 360 events an hour now in a betting shop. Now, I'm just interested, well, it's obviously like a community sort of spirit. Oh, I it was pretty, like, yeah, like as, there's still people now I meet who I worked with in 87, 88, 89, and we're still friends. We meet up once a year, you know, we go out and might meet them in London or they might come over here and we go on the lash. And as I said, Andreas is my daughter's godfather. He's been to my wedding, her christening, everything, you know? Now, Something that I'm interested in, it's probably just me, but I mean, multiples. So when you read about bookmakers hedging multiples when they're building up, I mean, at what point would you start hedging a multiple? Because they waste a lot of stakes. Well, look, I'll be honest, in the, the time I spent with Mecca, that was the only place where, as a manager, I had the facility to hedge bets, right? And it was drilled into us, you know, look at your bet. Because you'd go through your bets, you know, after every race, you're on top of everything, so you'd know what was running on. And there's only on two occasions where I hedged bets myself from the shop. And they were about, I only had to do two 250 pound doubles because it was getting near the end of the year. You knew what sort of a bonus you were heading for. So you were just trying to protect it. But we, you know, they trusted us that much. They gave us that facility to do it. I mean, now, Shireen, I, I don't think they give any. God, the poor managers in betting shops now have no autonomy to do anything anymore. Like they can't even pay out a bet, you know, for a few quid if it's, you know, a second late or without having to ring someone. Now, can you give us a bit of a background about, I mean, obviously you're from where we are now, Dublin, when we were driving you showed me where you were born, that sort of thing. Can you give us a bit of a background, maybe from like a racing family? No, not a racing family at all. Uh, my grandfather would have been a punter. You know, he was your, you know, 10p Yankee man. And I think, I remember in the early 70s, he told me the story, well, when I was a bit older, how we clicked for like, you know, which would have been a size, but about probably about four or five grand. But the limits in, at the time were only a grand. So that's all he got. So I remember how I got into it was 74, I always remember the year because Red Rum won a second national, West Germany won the World Cup, and that's when I was, I was kind of seven and a half, so you're getting into it. I backed Red Rum, and unfortunately I got the bug then. 
So I've been back in horses and dogs ever since. I was so much of it. My ma used to say, you're a scourge. Because when I was about nine or ten, I was saying, will you bring me racing? Will you bring me racing? So one day they eventually brought me up to the Phoenix Park on St. Patrick's Day. They brought me up there. It was snowing on St. Patrick's Day. But the great Lester Pickett was there. So then it was even more. He became my absolute hero in racing. And, like, you know, when you look back on his races. But my father never drank, never gambled. You know what I mean? So I'm the only one in the family. <laughs> well, they all drink, but I'm the only one who gambles and just has a love for, like, I'd go horse racing seven days a week. Now, I'm lucky that my wife, she's kind of like me. She loves sporting events. You know, we love live sport, whether it's racing, football, rugby, GAA, you know, basketball, anything. We just go to it. So when you say they took you to Phoenix Park, was that out of their comfort zone? Would that have been just uh, for you? Well, look, I mean, Ma would have been a snob. She reminds you of Hyas and Bouquet, you know what I mean? Like, she always asked you someone else. So she would have liked going to the races. You know, even so much that, even when I got to, say, 13 or 14, I used to, because I'd be punting in betting shops then, right, doing, you know, 20p Yankees and all this kind of stuff, right? You know, because you went in, there was no hassle, right? So if I won a few quid, I'd bring them to the races. So I used to, every now and again, especially the Punchestown Festival, that's what I love about Punchestown, I used to bring them to Punchestown, so I'd pay for them. To, I was only about 13, 14. I'm paying for them to get in, and I'm paying for their day out from what I've got off a of bet. So when you, when you were punting back in those days, when you were only a kid, so did you take it seriously? Were you like looking at form and stuff? No, look, look, a bit of the form, sure. I mean, like, you know, I, I, look, I still don't really go on form. I'd just ask someone what to back. In those days, I would have picked the horses out of the, the morning paper. And, you know, if I seen a few ones or a jockey I liked or whatever, something like, you know, it was... Stuff like that. So when um, when you were working in the shops when you were a manager, were you punting them? Oh yeah, sure. It was great. It was like you know, it was like I had landed in you know Narnia. I'm in heaven. I mean, I've got a job where I can have a bet, watch the racing. Yeah, and it's so funny. We often talk about it when we were settling. You'd be as the years went on, you'd be watching a race at Folkestone. It might be a selling handicap, and you'd say, "Jesus, such and such won that last year," because you would have had it in a bet because it's all in your memory from settling. Now you don't, like, I couldn't tell you what won any race yesterday even. And I was working for someone last night, you know, in a shop doing stuff. And I couldn't tell you what won any of the races. Now you're talking, you're talking about settling. Now for the, for the young people that have got an app that just put in, if they've had a three out of four, a lucky 15, they just tap it in. It comes out, how did you used to have to settle? Well, we were trained. It was a six-week settling course. Yeah, you uh, said, yeah. So what was it like, field book and all that, you know? No, settling, you, you marked your marker sheet and you went through your slips. And, you know, if you had a winner, you marked it up. And you'd know the ones that were running on, you'd take them out because you'd keep an eye on them. And if you knew there came a stage where you might have to let head off us now or in the two occasions where I hedged just to protect my bonus. But you're always, you're always on top of everything. Like, unfortunately now, some of the shops that are out there, someone would take about 10 o'clock in the morning and the person inputting it into the machine mightn't do it till 6 o'clock that night. So the bet could be all up and won. So you don't know what's going on. Whereas, like, as settlers, we were always told, be on top of everything. But I mean, mathematically, to settle like um, equally divided round uh, robin or something like that. I mean, did you know how to do uh, that by hand? Oh, yeah, we had to because the, the settling course was broken down into two parts. The first exam was a two hour exam where you were given 200 bets, a marker sheet that was marked up, and it would have had all different, you know, dead heats, rule fours, two in the same race. And you had to do them all by pen and paper. You didn't even have a calculator. And then the second uh, test we did was where they, like, the checker bet was the machine of choice then, the check a bet and the OTT machines were just coming out too. They were the kind of ones with the screen on them. But my favourite one was always a check a bet because it was quicker. And you'd, so the second exam was 
three hours where you're sitting in an environment where they're playing commentary, you're writing down your results, and you've got a pack of bets that you've got to go through and settle and submit them all at the end of the day. And was there ever such a thing as a punter that would beat you? Uh, look, there's always a few, but in the long run, you know, very few in beach in the long run. But there would have been, like, when I was a special training manager, I would have went to one shop that was actually tax-free. It was up near uh, Seven Sisters. And they'd let the punters in. They'd, give, they'd lay them a bet. They'd lay them a decent bet. But it, that was their marker, because they'd opened an hour earlier. It was tax-free, so you got some good shunters in there. But that was like, they nearly based their books off them in those days. So would you, would you be following those sort of guys in? Uh, unfortunately, no. No, because I was... No WhatsApp I was, groups in those days? No, right? there was no nothing. You know? <laughs> she, she couldn't even... I couldn't ring home because my, my parents didn't have a phone back here. <laughs> so you, wouldn't, you never had to... Do you ever had to deal with any sort of sticking on gangs coming in or... Ah, look, a slow counting's been going on since time began. I was in a few robberies, a uh, few hairy moments in some certain shops where... They'd be threatening you, you know, you know, if you don't pay me, I'm going to kill you. And you had to, you'd kind of use your, your Irish kind of, ah, come on, lads, you know what I mean? I'm only doing the job here. Or you just, you, but you, you couldn't give in to them. Because if you give in to them, you've lost a shop. I mean, I had one shop where the, the police, there was a drugs raid one day. And it was so funny. I knew the drugs raid was coming because I was asked that I want to leave. You know, I said, no, I'm not going because, you know, they'll know I knew what was happening. So I'm working in the shop and we didn't know when it was going to happen. So next of all, there's a race going off, it was a two mile chase or whatever, that's going off. So we used to have, you know, the off slips, you'd put the off slip through, that signified any bet after that off slip was void, win or lose. So the cashier is about to put the off slip in. I see a crowd of fellas burst through the door and I said, oh no, hang on, I think there's people coming up to do a bet. It wasn't, it was the drug squad coming in to flash their batches and bring the dogs in and sniff everything to get and all you know. So that was so like hairy times, you know, robberies were the war, you know, I was in a few, but none of them were too bad, you know. Okay, Dave, just through time constraints, I wanted to stop you there, but it's quite a, a turn of phrase. Uh, though I was in a few robberies, but none of them were too bad. You need to elaborate a little bit, please. Well, just like, you know, th there was no one uh, taken hostage or, you know, the, you'd have a gun probably pointed at you, and like, but it wasn't. And you had the screen between you, which we used to pretend to all the new startups was bulletproof, but it wasn't, you know. <laughs> but the worst one, not the worst one, it was funny because I was, when I was an area manager with Paddy Power, some of the staff had gone sick. So I went down to Ranla, Ranla shop to open it up. So I went down and opened it up. Young cashier turned in. And uh, next of all, this fella comes up to the counter with a knife. Give me the money. I said, what? He said, give me the money. So I went over, made sure the door was locked so he couldn't get in behind the counter. And then I broke into a lot of expletives, telling him what to do for himself and all. But the, he went over and he grabbed the man and put the knife to his throat. And I said, can I use language? Of course you can. I said, you fucking bastard. I'm going to bleed and kill you. But So I had to give him a few quid. So I gave him about 40 quid. I said, now fuck off. So he fucked off. And, then the, and I said to the poor man, are you okay? And he said, yeah, he's great. So the police turned up and they said to your man, can you just stay? We get a, 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 a statement off you. But in the heat of the hunt, the old man just slipped out as well and legged it. Now, whether he shouldn't have been in Ranla or whether he was part of the gang, I don't know. <laughs> But I was, I was perplexed for a few days after. I was going, I wonder was he involved, that dirty pig. And where, where was this? Ranla. Yeah, which is? A nice part of Dublin. Up oh, in, so you're back in Dublin. Oh, well, I just when I was back with Paddy Power, you know, I was an area manager at the time. And as I said, some of the staff had gone sick. So I was a real hands-on area manager, uh, probably too hands-on because, uh, look, it helped me because 
at one stage I went out up to 200 staff. They all had my number. Uh, I was always very accessible to them, but it helped me run a very successful area in that I'll always remember um, the, the head of ops one day said to another area manager, Jesus, Dave, his staff had lie down and die for him. And her reply was, well, that's because he's sleeping with them all. But I wasn't. <laughs> I, was just, I was just accessible to them. And it, like, because if someone rings you, no matter what their little minute problem is, to them it's serious if they're ringing you. So if you ring someone, it's like, you look at all retail businesses now or any customers, they can't get in touch with their provider when there's a problem. So I used to get, I used to get re, uh, online customers when I looked after the race car shops, especially for Paddy Power, would travel up from the country to come and see me and say, Dave, can you sort this out for me? And I used to, that was one of the gripes I had with, you know, we're a, a customer focused business and we don't talk to our customers. Can we rewind just a bit? So yep. you were in London yep. and then you got robbed a few times, a few times in, in yeah. Dublin. Well, London and Dublin. And Dublin. I, I, I've been lucky I've been robbed in two countries. Any, any particular London robbery memories? Uh, London robbery, the, four, the first one was the worst because I was working in a shop called uh, oh, I can't, Stroud Green or something, I can't remember, but the settler, you know, you must remember, we had plenty of staff then. It wasn't like, you know, there's, you'd have two or three cashiers and I used to sit around the back settling. So I'm sitting around the back settling and as I'd settle me winners, I'd bring them round to, you know, give to the guy and the, the girl or the payout to pay them out. So she'd file them from the guy handing his ticket. So I walked around with me tickets. And next of all, I seen the two girls throwing. I said, what are you doing? They're throwing money over the counter. And he said, look, and your man's there with the gun. And I went, ah, okay. And I just turned around and walked back and let them give out the money. But that was, that was my first one. So you never forget your first one. It's like when you... You lose your cherry out of other places. <laughs> hey, we won't go into that. We'll edit that one out. So, so why did you? What was the decision to move back to Dublin from London? Uh, well, I'll tell you what was happening. Um, I had great respect for. Well, Mecca became William Hill then at the time, right? And they were starting to talk about night racing, right? Now this was all foreign to us. Night racing, where you'd be working till half nine at night and all. And uh, I remember going to a manager's meeting, and there was guys there who were with Hills from the sixties. So like they were coming into, you know, they were in their 40s, 50s, wherever. I'm only a young book at 23, newly married, child. And they're talking about, and they asked the question, you know, what if we're not happy with these nights coming in? And they were more or less saying, if you're not happy, you know what you can do. And I said, I went home to the wife and I said, like, like, they're not showing these managers any respect. I mean, these are the people who built the company. But by then, you see, I, what I think that had happened is the people who started William Hill and built it up, and Ladbrokes and all them, They'd all gone and the accountants start to take over. And that's what happens to all firms. And the people, you have to like understand, you have to understand your staff's needs and help them. If you don't help them and if you're not being nice to them, they, I just said, like, they don't care about them. So if they don't care about them, they've built up the company. I'm only here three or four years. They're certainly not going to care about me. Ireland was probably starting to just pick up a little bit then. You know, we were, it wasn't like we have now, but it was just getting a little bit better. We had a new baby. I said, ah, should we go back to Ireland? So we packed up and left. And what was the first, you know, you walked straight into a job in Ireland? No, I didn't. I was, I was back about a month before I got a job. And funny enough, the gas thing is, a lot of the Irish bookmakers over here, they probably thought that the, the staff who came from England weren't up to scratch. But if they only realised the training we had, you know. And I was lucky, a good friend of mine, Eddie McMahon, who was known him since he worked for Ladbrokes when I was in England. He'd come over to Ireland to work in Ladbrokes. So I went to see him and fair play to him, he got on to 
whoever was running Labrox over here and said, look, you better take this fella on. So within two days, I was in working for them. And you were working in Kerry? That was, well, look, I, I left, I worked from Labrox from 92 to 98. And then in 98, I joined the Double P, the, the Super Green. And that was always my ambition to work for them because Labrox were a good company, but powers were, in them days, were like, it was like, go and work for them. If you want to work in a betting shop, go and work for them. They're busy. They treat you really well. The crack is great. So I went to work for them in 98. And then in 99, we've always been going down to Kerry. My brother moved there in 1979 when the Pope came over. I think he ran down to Kerry. He was afraid of the Pope. So he had met a woman down there and got involved with kids and grand. And we'd always been going down since I, I was gone from 1980 when I met my wife in 84. Well, you know, she was my girlfriend and I used to bring her down. And she always said, oh, I wouldn't mind living here. And then for some reason, we just got this, you know, do you know what? We moved to Kerry. So we up and went down to Kerry. Uh, I went to work. I did a bit of relief managing around Kerry for Paddy Power. And were you, so how did your career pr progress with Paddy Power quite well? Yeah, well, like, look, they always rewarded hard work. So I worked very hard down in Kerry. Uh, look, we had a great life, and I, uh, the laugh down there was you'd Kerry men, I'd say, What are you doing down here, boy? And I'd say, Ah, I'm on witness protection, don't tell anyone. So, you know what I mean? So that was, and it was great. And because, I must be honest, the level of service I brought down there, they'd never seen anything like it. I don't, no disrespect to them down there, Aunt, right? but they hadn't got the customer service belief that, say, I had. So, I can, myself and the wife, she worked in Powers as well. She, we were like Posh and Becks. You'd walk into a pub in Tralee and you'd go to buy a drink and they'd say, I oh, know, such and such has got that for you. But we were never compromised, you know, because I never compromised myself with anybody. So Tralee, was, it was a good experience. And then my wife, again, you always go where the women want to go. She says, I want to go home. I said, okay. So we moved back to, well, I, we priced ourselves out of Dublin prices then, so we, we moved to Navan in County Mead. And we were still working for Powers. And then in 2005, I got the opportunity to become an area manager of Paddy Power, which I grabbed with both hands because uh, it was just, I, I always felt it was a job I was cut out to do. It was just... People, people is my forte. That's what I do best. I look out, you know, I listen, help them, you know, never do anyone a bad turn. You know, just if you can do them a good turn, do them a good turn. Right. So all that was part of your personality, which would yeah. help you with the job. But it was still an upgrade from. What oh, an upgrade. Look at, I look at. I'll be honest. The day I went in, and I was told I had the job. Uh, <laughs> I'll be honest. When your man told me the salary, I turned around and said to him, "Listen, I need to go to the toilet for a second. I was that excited, you know what I mean? Well, I couldn't believe it. And look, you know, and I had a great living out in Paddy Power. They gave me a great life. I met some absolutely wonderful people there. One of them being AK, who I work for, do a bit for now. But they always had the best of the best working for them. Tell us about Jimmy Mangan. Jimmy Mangan, to me, was probably the biggest influence in my area manager career because he had such a way with people and he knew the business. Like, he knew that you can't just keep you know, trying to screw the punters, you got to give them a bit back. And it was the same with everything, in everything we ever did in Paddy Power to change, you know, opening hours, this, that and the other. Jimmy, we, we didn't enforce it. You, you go in, we talk to the staff and he, you bring them along with you. And that's what I learned from him. And he just, and plus he's great crack. You know, he really enjoyed a few points. I remember one day he said to me, Dave, I think your problem is you don't drink enough. You know, so I said, okay, I'll, I'll prove on that now. <laughs> and we've been friends for like when he left even we still remained friends and I'd still see him but what a man he just 
His man management style and skills were second to none. And I'd even know myself, I would have had a monthly meeting with him. And look, you know yourself, sometimes the job gets on top of you. But you'd go into that monthly meeting, spend a half an hour, we'd go and do a shop, few shop visits, and you'd be re-energised for the, you know, the battles ahead. You just had a way of just getting you going. And what's the main crux of your job? Troubleshooting then, is that what you did? Look at troubleshooting and, you know, managing the business levels, you know, it, it's very hard to, you know, manage. You let risk look after the business levels, you know. The staff will bring in the business. An old friend of mine once said, and it's a true story, it's very hard to fill a betting shop, but it's very easy to empty it. And like every staff I ever talked to or interviewed or whatever, I said, look, at, we're in here, we're all peddling the same stuff, us, Ladbrokes, Hills, Corals, all of them. I said, what makes us stand out is the service we provide. So you wanted the best trained and the best informed staff so they could provide the service to the customer. Because a customer wants to know, you know what I mean, if you ask them a question, you're going to give them an answer. You don't go in and say to someone, which I've, you know, over the years, have you got prices on the St. Ledger? Is that a golf tournament? You know, these are some of the other shop, other companies where you'd ask these questions and these were the answer again. Is that a golf tournament? No, it's a horse race though. And there's something that I've always found difficult myself working on course years ago was you get to know your punters, you get to like them, but ultimately you want their money. So how I, you, how, you can take it off them in a nice manner. You know what I mean? And then when they win, you know, like like some of the you know, some of the managers used to take it personally if they were at the shop and said, Look at the bloke is winning. Everyone has to win every now and again, you know. So you always pay them with a smile, well done, because you know, look, they're all going to come back, you know. Even God, you know, customers will always come back to you if you provide them with a good service. You know what I mean? Even I've heard it when we're on the course for AK, we always, if there's a decent bet comes up, customer is paid, we're happy, we're smiling, we're laughing. And a few of them have remarked that to us, God, you really are like, even when you pay me, you're not going to moan and you're really ever. I said, but that's the way we operate, we're a good, happy bunch. And when did the, had the machine sort of surfaced when you, before you finished with uh, Paddy Power? Oh, look, at the machine surfaced. To me, it was the death nail of where the big multiples cared about the customer, especially when the fobs came in. You know, the fobs, they just took their eye off the ball completely then. You know, they're over-the-counter business. They just weren't interested in it. You know, get as many fobs as you can in. And it was only when they got regulated. I mean, there was shops that had probably 10 fobs before they were told you can only have four. And then they tried to get around that loophole by they'd have a shop within a shop so they could have eight fobs. So they didn't care about the over-the-counter business. And now you've got the BGTs, you know, these kind of self-service betting terminals. Look, they're not, they're not in my mind, I'm, I'm an old-fashioned kind of guy, right? They're not the be-all and end-all. Uh, I know from working with Powers all the years I'm there, they're still not a major part of the Irish turnover. The UK, they're huge, but it's a different clientele over there. And finally, from this part, what, you know, did, did you jump away pushed in the end? Uh, mutual uh, mutual consent. It was like, you know, when... Uh, uh, now, it wasn't one of them where they said, we have every confidence in the manager, <laughs> you know, and then the manager leaves the club. No, look, uh, my, my view on how the business should go in retail and their view were totally north and south. I still cared about the customer. I still cared about the staff. Unfortunately, I don't think they did. And that's where we collided. And I think they were probably happy to see me go because they probably saw me as a disruptor you know and then obviously then they could get something to do the job a lot cheaper all right dave we talked about your uh, long and illustrious career in betting shops and in the betting industry um i 
done quite a few of these interviews, but it's the first time that somebody's got a sideline as an ethical celebrant. So can you tell us what an ethical celebrant is? Well, what I do is I actually, I do the uh, fun part of ceremonies. Um, I went to my sister's wedding in London in about 2017, 2018, I can't remember which, and she got married out of her back garden. And I said, I thought it was lovely. You know, because I remember when I got married in the 90, you know, 1990, it was in a church. All people saw was the back of my head and the back of my shoes, you know, and it took so long. But this thing, it was like about a 20, 25 minute ceremony. So I remember asking her, I said, she said, that was lovely. She goes, oh yeah, he's a celebrant. And I said, but does he legally marry? She says, no, for us to get married, we still have to get married in the registry office. So I was him and then Han and thinking about it. And then I said, you know, I'm going to do some research on this. So I did some research on it. And I found that there was a course over here run by the Irish Institute of Celebrants. So it was a couple of grand. You did it every Sunday for about four or five months. You'd go in, they showed you how to, you know, put a wedding together. Um, it teaches you, it brings you out of your comfort zone. Uh, not like you might laugh when I say this. I'm a naturally shy person. Right? <laughs> yeah, we'll laugh. <laughs> no, but, but I do like to perform, you know. So it's like people would say, Dave, you'd be a great salesman. I wouldn't be a great salesman if I'm knocking on your door because I'm in your domain. But if someone comes into my arena, they're mine. I own them, you know, and I'm very confident I can do that. So I went and you learned how to speak, project your voice, timing with your voice, breathing. So it was a whole good course. And that's how I, then I got my first wedding about two months after I had passed out. And I've been doing them ever since. They're, they're a really nice thing because you're bringing such joy it's people's happiest day of their life, right? Well, some of them is the saddest, but yeah, but that's another thing. So I would meet the couple, we go through what way do you want the running order to go? We put their story together. I get them to tell me how they met, their first kiss, all that sort of stuff. And then I put a whole wedding together. I turn up on the day, I perform for half an hour, I get four hundred and fifty euros and I walk out the door. And it's it's brilliant. And and all the couples I've married they all keep in touch with me because I'd be very critical of the ceremonies I write. My wife would come a lot of the times with me because you always need someone to carry the bag. And I, she'd say it was beautiful and she'd be listening to the comments around the room and all. And even the couples when I'm leaving, oh, thanks Dave, that was just so beautiful. You know, did you be crying and all? Because I'd throw in a few, like, I always love to use, does a, I watched that film Hitch, you know, it's about a, he's a love doctor forever. So when the bride walks down the aisle, I turn around and I say, um, as the great doctor of love, Alex Hitchens, once said, life is not about the amount of breaths you take. It's the one that takes your breath away that count. And then I look at the bride and I go, Mary, you really have taken her breath away today. Now, it's cheesy, but I, and I always mention Cupid in the stories. But then that helped lead into me then when a good friend of mine, Graham Temple, who was another Paddy Power employee, he was the Greyhound commentator in Mullingar. And then he gave it up for his son to take it over because so he could concentrate more on his career in Paddy Power. But then when his son was leaving to go to Canada, Graham said, well, I'll take it over. And he was kind of going, well, I don't want to do it all the time. So I'll have to try and get someone. And then he said, he said, oh, sure, Dave, you're leaving Paddy Power now. Do you want to have a go at commentating? And of course, yeah, me, anything, you know, where I can earn a few quid and enjoy what I'm doing. So I grabbed it with both hands. And then after a few months, he said, look, Dave, I'm going to give it up will you take on the gig full-time? So I took on the gig full-time and I love it. It's, you know, it's, it's, it's a job that, it's like working on the track, doing a wedding. Any of the jobs I do now, there's no stress. There's no, oh God, I'm going to work. 
you know so I, I used to always look at these people uh, if you love a job or you know have a job you love you'll never work a day in your life but for the last say year or so I felt like I'm not working anymore all right we're going to go on to your commentating in a bit but I want to stay on the celebrity but marriage thing actually you've mentioned your wife a lot yeah. she's been a mainstay in all this story so far you've sort of dropped her in yeah, well, I mean, look, everyone has a long-suffering wife. and uh, Like, you know, not she's long-suffering, but we've been together now. Uh, she's nearly 40 years. We met when we were, I was 18, she was 18. She's a bit older than me, so she, she took advantage of me. But uh, <laughs> we've, uh, look, we've had her ups and downs, but we, she has been, she's always supported me in what I do. You know, and you always need a sounding board. Like, you know, there'll be times, even as an area manager, you know, like I've got a couple of disciplinaries to do tomorrow. So you'd be kind of, you'd, you'd sit down and, you know, run through some of the stuff with her and she'd say, yeah, just to give you that bit of, bit of context on, so you're not kind of making a, a balls of it. And the, the only time before meeting you that I've come in contact with a celebrant, it's been at a funeral. So do you do the, do you wave the dearly departed off as well as uh, the happy uh, things? Do you know what, it's something I thought about. Um, I, I don't know, I, I, I love, uh, I'm... Uh, I could, if I was doing a funeral, I'd probably start crying because I can get quite emotional, even at weddings. So I think a funeral would be no good if the, the bloke who's carrying out the ceremony is there going, I can't believe he's dead, oh no. You know, so, but look, uh, if, <laughs> if the commentating and the working for AK doesn't work out, well then I might have to you know, change direction and start doing funerals. I've done a few baby namings as well. I actually did a, a wedding last year where- well, they were, You named the baby? Yeah. No, I don't. It's, I'm not like, you know, the Lion King and I picked them up and, you know, no, we, we, we write a little, uh, you know, a little thing. And it's really, it's actually, after I wrote it, well, look, I plagiarised another colleague from the IIOC. She sent me on her because she was very creative. She did more baby names. So I took some stuff from her ceremony and put some of my own stuff in. And yes, yeah, so I've done a couple of them and they're, they're quite nice, actually. Now, you mentioned about working with AK, run his office now on course, most weddings on Saturdays. Uh, funny enough, not really. Like, like I'm doing one this Friday, which like I know I'll miss Punchestown, but it's just I'm doing this as a it's a a, a kind of someone called me up. He couldn't do it, so I'm, that's how I got roped in to do it. The next one I'm doing is on a Friday. See, it's cheaper to get married on a you know Monday to Friday. Saturday weddings are too dear, so I'm very lucky. You know, and AK is very accommodating because a lot of the Saturdays I work for AK, I can still make it to Mullingar to do the commentating. Because a lot of bookmakers who stand at the race course go to Shelbourne, you know, so I'm going, they're going to one dog track and I'm going to another. So how did the, how did the tie up with him working on courses? You know him at Paddy Power? AK? Yeah. yeah, I remember he was the uh, senior, I think he ran the dog trading up there. I always found him very interesting, you know what I mean? I'd, I was trying to pick his brains, trying to get a winner off him. I'm one of these lazy punters. I like someone else to do the work for me, you know? I've, uh, my wife always said, you, I, I just slag her, say, I think I've ADHD now. I have a very short attention span. I, even in the, when I worked for Paris, if people were emailing me, I'd say, don't send me more than one paragraph because I won't read it. Because I read the first paragraph and then I get distracted and they go, ah, I'm not looking at that. So being, being on the joint with, with your stage as you like to uh, have is, is ideal, isn't it? Yeah, love it. You know, it's like, a, like being a barker on a carousel. Like you're just there and, you know, it's just a crack you can have and you meet many interesting people. And look at even when they're there, men, women, always tell them, you look great, you smell nice. Everyone loves a compliment. And they'll always remember that. I went up and had a bet with AK and he told me my hat was nice, my dress was nice, I smelled nice, you know, that's him or her. Just 
people want to, you have to give them something to remember you by. And not just, I went up to that bookmaker and gave him my money. Have you, um, yeah, that's true. Have you had any, have you got any good on-course stories yet? Or is it too early? A bit too early yet, like, you know what I mean? Uh, only, no, not really. I just, I look at, there was loads of on-car stories when I ran, but I was looking after the on-car shop with Paddy Power, where we had to peel people up off the ground on student day and all, and stuff like that. Or I remember, there was one funny one, um, we were really, you know, this big on the Tink 21 stuff, you know what I mean? Now, I remember, like, betting in Ireland used to be, it was Tink 5. If you looked over 5, you take a bet off them, you know, in the shops, on the course. So we're on this big drive on the Tink 21 campaign and all. So the counter in Leperstown is quite high. So um, a very short pair, well, I, I don't know what the politically correct term is for them, like, but, you know, a dwarf or whatever you want to call them, right? comes up to the counter i see a hand come up and i'm just about to go have you any idea and don and one of my managers dave no no because <laughs> i didn't want to upset her you know but we'll probably have to edit that out because i don't know what you called it but that was funny because we were all breaking a show laughing there you know? we don't edit stuff out on this series um so you you, you said about commentating on the grounds at mullingar so had you done commentary before you've done that? Is that like trap one, trap two, or do you have to know the names? No, well, look, it, it's my style is still developing. I kind of, I, 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 I uh, when I started first, it was one, two, you know, now I bring in the names, so it's one, you know, Big John from two, you know, Little John or whatever. Uh, I tend to use, I'm, I love the American commentary, so I always, when, when the Greyhounds are going down the back straight, I love to go down the back straight, approaching the third bend. It's three, big Al from four. Uh, I've been caught out a few times in Mullingar because it's a long straight and a lot of results changes there. So there's a few, like, you know, the commentator course where you say, and this is home for all money. And next of all, he out just ducks up the outside and you go, oh, no, there he goes again. And I'm also told that your celebrity is such that you actually open betting shops now. Well, look, at another strength of my bow, as I, my wife says, Dave, you will prostitute yourself to anything, which I will as long as it's legal. Yeah, so I did a gig for uh, the Magic Sign up in Belfast a couple of weeks ago where we, they reopened their, their kind of digital hub shop. Nice shop, it's well done. Uh, so we had a bit of crack up there. I got to interview Jason Quigley, he's a boxer. And, uh, and then look, at the, I suppose it took me about 10 minutes then when he was gone, you're looking at you're trying to get the audience going, the punters, get them going. So I was walking around, like it's, it's like a stand-up comedian. You're walking around trying to interview people and then I just start saying, okay, we're gonna start betting. So we start punting. So I started Hanson, you know, two to five shots. I'd say, right, we go five to two, you know, for a max of a score. And everyone's getting involved. And the first two lost. And I go, oh, Jesus Christ. I, I'm even stopping odds on shots here. You know what I mean? But then we gave him a few winners now. And then we finished off with it. There was a, an even money shot and I went fours and the whole shot backed it. And then we went, right, that's it. We're done. I enjoyed it. Look, I, I suppose I just enjoy making a spectacle of myself. Now you, you said earlier that you were you had to go to the toilet when they told you how much you were going to get paid when you yeah. got your promotion. Uh, you've left all that, so you do it. You're freelance. You're doing all these bits and bobs. I mean, on leaving the security of a corporate bookmaker, it, how does it feel? You know, is it is it? it look, it, it was daunting, and it still is because. But I always like I probably mentioned it, my father died very young, right? So you only get one life, right? So I was getting to the stage in Powers where I was unhappy because of the way it was going. So I'm not going to be, I remember talking to an American fellow years ago and he says, look, you've got to be happy in work, he says, because you spend a third of your life in work, you spend a third of your life in bed. And he said, the other third of your life might be with your missus. So he says, you better enjoy work. So you have to enjoy what you're doing. 
<laughs> so uh, I, I discussed it with the wife and I, my father died, I said, at 55. He was a month over his 55th birthday. When I was a month after my 55th birthday, I decided, that's me, I'm done. I'm going to try something new. Right, now you said you'd like to enjoy life. This is the final part. An eagle-eyed people amongst us might have spotted you on AK's Wall of Fame in the back there. Yeah. There's a little bit of, I mean, I'm a bit, I've never, you know, any any chance of telling us what happened? Well, look, I could lie and say I was auditioning for a horror film uh, (laughs) that was makeup. But now uh, the generosity of AK now is now bound, so we're out on a Christmas night. And look, you're always 16 in your head. I'm the oldest, uh, well, bar when TK is over, I'm the oldest of the community that's here. They're all young they can drink. I probably just think I still can drink the way I used to. I can't. I had one cocktail too many, came out, hands in pockets, missed a step, and the rest, they say, is history. So this, you've got your, your celebrant stuff, you do your commentating. Is there anything that you've got your eye on that you'd like to extend your your sort of reach to anything you fancy well look I, I, I love the on course work uh, I love the commentary uh, I'd love the challenge to say you know doing a bit of commentary somewhere else I really admire I tell you the guys to be like the likes of Jerry Hannon and all the horse racing commentators like only having to remember six dogs names and they're remembering like 40 runners in a handicap is amazing you know but I'm sure with training but I'd love to commentate somewhere else or, look I get into some sort of promotion stuff for companies um, you know to just because I like to have a bit of laugh and like you got to generate an atmosphere in the room and I think I'm pretty good at that you know that was one of the reasons why I did the celebrant course too because I used to look at all these gobshites coming into Paddy Power saying you know I worked with the CEO and a big you know talking absolute shite you know this motivation and I'm going fucking hell I said that's a lot I could do that and that's why I wanted to get trained because I think Look, people laugh, but I mean, the amount of money they used to spend on bringing in these people to tell us how to do what we know what we're doing, and they know nothing about the business. I used to go, mm, don't get it. So I want to do that. I want to go and talk shy to companies. <laughs> Brilliant. Well, on that note, Dave O'Reilly, thank you very much. Thank you. I think we'll have to do a sequel. <laughs> <laughs>